0: Hey, so if you're listening to this, or you're not listening yet, but if you're listening to me talking, you're about to hear a lecture from psychology, also biology, 2606 introduction to behavioral neuroscience for the fall term of 2023. How in the hell is it 2023? That means I'm 58 years old. And I imagine that makes me old. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this. But uh, you know, if you're one of my students, great. Uh, I'm glad you're doing this, and I do this for you. If you're somebody else listening, I really don't care what you think, but uh, actually it's pretty great because I'm really good at this. Enjoy. All right, so today, uh, we'll finally get to what I wanted to do on Wednesday, but we couldn't because, you know, everything was stupid. But now we're here and it's all good. So what I want to talk about today is the sort of second half of the introductory kind of stuff. Um, And this is mostly about, we'll talk about evolutionary theory some, and just general sort of history of, well, let's just see what it is and we'll go from there. Uh, All right. So we left off here and I was talking about behavior and James asked an interesting question. Do you, do you spell behavior with a U or without the U? Just be consistent. So if you're writing a paper for me, just make sure you spell it always the same way. Uh, let's maybe kill. Oh, that's worse. That's better. You don't like that? Don't care, I like it. Uh, it's better, right? Because it's easier to see. I'm probably gonna walk into things, but anyway yeah so um this is where we left off talking about what behavior what, uh, is rather and it's the uh, action of an organism have function so remember the moths and the bats in that case the cause is the sound and the function is the evasion that the animal can do so the function is the invasion the cause is the sound causes have to come before effects right it's the way things work in our universe. Um, that's going to both be learned things and inherited things. So it's not just going to be things that the animal is wired to do. Like, like the moth is hooked up that way. They don't have to learn that. It, they just, it happens. Though this is also true with things that are learned. Uh, and also, as I said the other day, which seems like a year ago, it's only a week, not all behavior has an obvious function. My favorite example here is play. As a rule play, you can't think of what the function of play is but it has it, it seems to do something like you think about uh say cats especially little cats will play with uh, toys and what they're doing is practicing hunting probably we don't really know okay okay so let's talk about some history so actually wasn't first first another planet jumped in bumped into earth most people don't realize that. anyway it doesn't matter point is then there were people. Uh, so I just skipped about three, yeah, maybe three and a half billion years of history. So early humans, I think we can be pretty, I think we can guess, wondered about why we do what we do. One of the things that's very important in humans in general is something called theory of mind. Why do you behave the way you do? And, and can I figure it out, right? We are constantly doing this as people. We are constantly trying to figure out what some behavior means from others. Right, so I'm talking to you and maybe I have this kind of look in my face. You might wonder, what's his problem? Maybe you think well, I'm angry with you or something, right? Or if I had a look on my face like this while I was talking to you, you'd probably think I was a little pissed off at you. I'm acting, this is acting. Uh, however, or if somebody's walking down the street, and you, they're walking towards you, and you're walking towards them, if you just walk them you'd probably get in that guy's way. That guy's kind of a psycho. He's a psycho. I'm just going to get in his way. I don't want to get bumped into that guy. Okay. So we're constantly wondering about this, and that's just on a day-to-day basis. We're always doing it, right? But in a more formal fashion, I'm sure people were doing it too. Um, so sitting around a fire as a bunch of, you know, early modern humans. Eventually, people start living in towns. (laughs) I have have skipped literally so much hit like about three and three quarter billion years. Around 10,000 years ago, people started living in towns. Some people. Mostly, um, probably the first towns were in in modern day Iraq at the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Baghdad. So, people started doing that. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, so now we've got some ancient Greeks. There's Aristotle. It's an actual photo of Aristotle. Of course it isn't. Died a long time. They didn't have photo- photography in ancient Greece. It wasn't a thing. They need statues. So, Aristotle believed the heart was the seat of all behavior. And we can laugh at that because it's wrong and stupid. But no one's going to talk about any of you in 3,500 years. And no one's going to talk about me. They'll still talk about Aristotle. So we should be somewhat impressed. There's a certain internal logic to this. The more you behave, the faster your heart beats. Oh. And remember, if you don't know anything, if you were doing this from first principles, not from I've learned things in school, blah, 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 you'd probably go, my heart beats fast, but I run fast. My heart is the engine of my behavior. It makes sense, doesn't it? It's wrong, but it makes sense. It's kind of cool because as soon as you buy into something, one of the things that happens, this happens all the time, it doesn't matter what the person is or who they're, what they're studying. He realized the brain was important. He saw there were brains. But once you said, well, I know the heart runs all the behavior, then you got to think, well, what's this do? Well, I don't know. That's weird. Why do we have such big brains? Because we have lots of thinking. And it's a radiator. It's a lot. But when you think that your heart controls behavior, your brain must do something. So he thought it cooled the blood. Humans need stupidly big brains because we think a lot. This is Aristotle. He's wrong, obviously. But it's, it's an interesting thought. And we can laugh at it. And then we can skip another, oh, I don't know. Let's go, let's skip another is it 1,500 years. Uh, and we're now at the, this is, we're now into the 1600s. Uh, so this is uh, well, yeah, 15 to 16. By the way, that's pretty good. Eh? That's it's a good run for somebody living there. That's Thomas Hobbes. Wouldn't call him a good-looking guy. Not a bad-looking guy, either, I guess. The empiricists were people, they were British philosophers, who thought that the content of the mind rests solely on experience. I'm, you know, I, don't know. Until I do, and I'll get back. <laughs> Um, so, the contents of the mind rest on experience. So, everything about us is because of what we've expe- experienced. This is what people like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke said. So, there's a picture of John Locke. Now, he was not a good-looking guy. I don't, I, I, I don't think that's a good-looking guy. He looks like an old lady. I, anyway. It's like golden my I don't know if you know who that is, but it does look like my ear. President of Israel in the early 70s. Um, one of the things that Locke said was that your mind is like a white paper. So it's the, so the experience writes on the white paper. Or a tabula rasa. That's Latin for blank table, uh, tablet, like a wax tablet. The, uh, you know, kids in school, they didn't have ink pen. They would have a tablet that had wax on it, and then you would scrape on the tablet with a stylus. Okay, so you know, that, that, that's something they used to do, it, obviously, because people have these kind of tablets. This is a radical idea. You might know, say what do you mean it's radical? It's even politically radical. Anybody have a coin on them? A Canadian yeah. coin. Yeah, what's it say on the back? Like the, no, the front actually, the obverse. The part the part that has the queen on it, and now the king. But. Elizabeth II? Yeah, what else? Uh, DG Regina, $2. Yeah. You know what DG stands for? Probably not. Die Gratia. Die Gratia Regina. Not Regina, but We pronounce it like that. You know what that means? By the grace of God, queen. And the new one will say Die Gratia. It'll actually probably say Die Gratia because, Die Gratia because it's, uh, they can fit it. And it'll say DG or VG Rex. By the grace of God King. People literally thought this. At that time, people actually thought that kings and queens were special. And they, that God made them king or queen. They're different than us. They're magical rich people. Reminds me of, you know, Elon Musk's bootlickers. But <laughs> the point of this is that Locke and Hobbes said, no, everybody's just So that's actually a really radical idea. So as much as the idea of experience being important in, in learning, which it obviously is, doesn't sound radical, these notions are radical, and both Locke and Hobbes were political radicals. Pretty important in the history of Western thought, really. So these guys are saying that everybody's the same and it's all just your experience. Okay? However, not everybody shared this view. Here's Rennie Descartes. And if you can't just guess by that picture, you was from France. That picture just looks like this. What are you doing? Go away. Or I will talk to you a second time. So Descartes said that we were machines with souls. Machines with souls. And the mind and body are separate things and they're connected. Oh, wait, wait, wait yeah. Non-human animals have no souls. According to Descartes, I don't think anything has a soul. I'm quite sure of that actually. But the point is Descartes like, no, it's, we're just animals. But we have souls, and our soul connects, our mind and body connects through our pineal gland, which is a little tiny gland in your brain. Of course, this is a crock, but this is saying we have inborn things. He's saying we have inborn ideas, Descartes. Descartes, you might call him nativist. Um, So, now the other thing you have to realize when you read, when when you hear about Descartes and his idea about souls, is that, but half the time when he's writing, he means. Brain, he means thinking, he means mind. And the other half of the time, he kind of means your immortal Catholic soul. <laughs> so, uh, you gotta get it from context a lot. And the problem with that is, unless you read French, you're not gonna read it in the original language and it's gonna be translated by somebody else. So, and also the French that he wrote in is kind of weird. If you speak French, like you read it and go, hey, I think I know what that means. Anyway, he didn't always mean soul like your immortal soul. Sometimes he meant mind but it's hard to know when he means which, either of them. Point is, he thought that the mind and the body were separate and that we have certain inherited characteristics of our our mind. We obviously do other things. Okay. So, now we're only up to 200 years ago. (laughs) So, By the 19th century, the 1800s, we're starting to get into people talking about psychology, the the word, people are using the word, using the word psychology. Um, But psychology was still not a scientific approach to the study of behavior. If anybody ever asks you what psychology is, the answer is it is the scientific study of behavior and cognition. Um, But people weren't using it scientifically then, they were, it was more philosophers all sciences came out of philosophy right all of them physics chemistry biology they all came out of what happens is philosophers figure some stuff out eventually everybody goes yeah we don't need you guys anymore that's what happens so the last half of the 19th century so the latter part of the 1800s changes everything um, the zeitgeist of the times change what's happening around them zeitgeist is a german word it means spirit of history it's also an english word it's a word that we borrowed in english from german so the spirit of history what's happening what's out there so everything changes in the last half of the 20th or sorry the 19th century everything changes so people start there's a big technological revolution happening. I told you. That's a ref I don't care that you don't get that joke. That's there for me. That lost Austin Powers and I don't care. I'm leaving it there. So the Enlightenment of the 18th century. This is, you know, the sort of the new science ideas and all these things in the 1700s. This is now affecting the common person because technology grew a lot more slowly back then. It wasn't like someone discovered something and then five years later there's a product. That's just not how it worked in the 1800s. Things were slower, so it took some time for all this wonderful new science that was happening and to, to to breed new technologies. So it's affecting now the common person, the, all of us. Unless someone in here is a noble, probably not. So science and technology could explain everything. You've got to understand something up until about the 1850s. And this is true pretty much anywhere you lived, no matter what world you lived, what country you lived in. You didn't leave where you grew up. And you did what your dad did or what your mom did. Right, so you did. What do you think English last names come from? They're your jobs. Like Smith? It's a blacksmith. My name's my name a German uh last name, but uh, German Swiss, but Broadbeck it means bread baker. My right? distant ancestors were bakers, I guess. So you didn't. If your father was a cooper, you were a Cooper. <laughs> just how it worked. A Cooper, Coopers make barrels. That's what a Cooper is, and that's what the name Cooper comes from. You didn't go anywhere else! You couldn't get there. What are you gonna do? Book a flight? Maybe a train. Oh, trains were huge. One sec. Trains were huge. In Europe and North America. And in an Asia, all over the place. And by the 1850s, in fact, you had a subway system running in London, England, with regular steam engines. I, I'm sure it wasn't polluted at all in those tunnels. Yes, sir. So, um, does zeitgeist mean the uh, spirit of history? Yes, yeah, spirit of history. So, just yeah, it does mean that. It means what's happening now. So, if you said what's in the what's in the cultural zeitgeist, you're saying what's what? Are, how are people thinking right now? So, for example, if I said that the zeitgeist right now is a lot of concern about the climate. Okay, so it's what people are talking about, what people are doing, that's what zeitgeist like. okay? All right, so people went from never visiting anywhere else to getting on ships and going to other countries. Right, people started traveling by rail and by boat. By a ship, you know things like that. It was a real thing. This was a huge thing, and suddenly there were lights on streets. Gas lights. They weren't. They weren't. Uh, you know, electrical lights yet, yeah, but there was gas lights in all, all over uh, the world. Wow. So they were just gas-powered lights instead like of electrical. But they were still lights, street lights, things like this. They were affecting things. People were. Working in factories, they were not working just uh, with their hands or working the land, like they were working they for, for wages instead of building things, right, so, so, uh, and, and trading them. So the world is changing drastically. Drastically. It's something, we're going from something that you, all, all of us in, in the night, we can understand life in the 1820s and 30s, but it would be way different you get into like the 1870s except for the technology and a lot of people's attitudes it's very similar people have jobs people raise families like it's, it's not that different than the way we have it today and people travel so people are starting to see that everything can be explained by science and technology and we're using science and technology we're Uh, communicating by telegraph, all kinds of cool stuff like that. So, even the origin of humanity, even the origin of humanity can be explained without appealing to religion. That's Charles Darwin. Don't know who that is, should learn who that is. So Charles Darwin in 1858 writes a book called The Origin of Species calls a short abstract, it's epic. <laughs> You should read it, you should read it, you shouldn't have to pay any money for it, the, the copyright is gone, so uh, you, can, you should be able to get it anywhere for cheap. Uh, it's one of the few cases where, you know, downloading a book off the internet, it's free, it's, it being free, it's actually fine, because <laughs> it's out of uh, copyright. It's very well written, it's a good book. It's actually really, it's something, if you're a biology student, you should read it, and a psychology student, you should read Origins. This comes out, and in fact, um, it's an academic book. This is not written for the general public. This is not, yeah, it's not for the general public. This is for other scientists, yet it sells out its first printing on day one. It had that much buzz. People were reading it uh, at the underground platforms for the, for the tube in London. There's an apocryphal story that says that the person said that Party a few days later about some social event. Have you heard about Darwin's book? And the person says, I have, I hope it does not, I hope it's not true, but if it is true, I hope it does not become popular. Or I hope it invents biology. Before Darwin, we have no biology. We have people looking at grass and looking at trees and going, hey, look, bugs. That's not biologists. That's people just looking and pointing at things. It's classifying. This gets important. We call it biology. So you can figure out, like, anything with science, this is what people are thinking, right? It's a pretty exciting thing. You can figure anything with science, including where people come from. And I'll explain this in a second, though. probably at this point, the biology majors just be able to go to sleep for the next 20 minutes, but the <laughs> point is, uh, evolution by natural selection is a mechanistic account of how Well, how species evolve, how they change. And there's no need anywhere for a designer, there's no need anywhere for anything running it. It just is. There are laws of nature. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about natural selection. And a lot of you, as I said, should, well, you all should know this, but let's all get caught up. The theory of natural selection is so simple that anyone can misunderstand it. You will find, as I talk about this, that quite possibly you were taught this incorrectly in high school, or elementary school. Because it is very, it's actually incredibly simple. It really is simple. Um, But people misunderstand it all the time. So Charles Darwin, I don't care if you know when he was born or when he died. You know what I care about? You know that he lived in the 1800s. I don't need the exact dates. It's, he saw three problems in need of a solution. He was also not the only person uh, who saw these problems. Uh, Other naturalists, that's what, I'm going to go with naturalists to describe people who we might call biologists today, because I think pre-Darwin there's no biology, so I'm not going to call people like that a biologist, I'm going to call them a naturalist. They saw the same issues, these same things were coming up all the time. So this was something that was out there in the the, the scientific zeitgeist, if you wanna use that word again. So there were three problems. Here's the first problem. There's change over time in the flora and the fauna of the earth. Flora is plants, fauna is animals. This is what we would call evolution today. We would call that, like in popular parlance, we say evolution, we tend to just mean change over time, right? The fossil record showed this. It. it was pretty clear that there are animals that are no longer around anymore. That was something everybody saw. It was uncontroversial. It's not controversial. It wasn't controversial in the 1800s, and it isn't now. It's just not controversial. It's controversial perhaps among very bizarre fringe theory of people who also believe the Earth is flat. It's not, by the way, there's no controversy. Things have changed over time. Okay. So there's animals around there. That that, there's been change over time. and uh, Some of these animals here are dead. Like, I don't see any of these. You know, in the 18, 1880s, someone unearths uh, the first fossil of Archaeopteryx, the, 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 the sort of scary flying dino bird the link between, like, theropod dinosaurs and modern birds. And modern birds are dinosaurs. So, we see all this kind of stuff, and people are like, well, how'd that happen? That's a good question. So that's the first problem people saw. Second problem, there's a taxonomic relationship among living things. Okay? Because the only thing people could do, because they didn't have Darwin's theory, Evolution by natural selection, they couldn't, there's a whole lot, a whole lot else that sort of naturalists could do, so what they did is they classified things. People were really good at it. Darwin was the best, by the way. One of the reasons Darwin was picked to go on the Voyage of the Beagle was because he was so good at finding specimens of new species. So this is what people did, and people saw that there were, I mean, we could all see it just ourselves, there's different, of cats and are different kinds of grasses and there's different kinds of birds right you can look at a whole bunch of cats and say fine that's a chia and that's a European woodcat and that's a ocelot but they all look like cats and that's a person and that's a chimp and that's a bonobo but those are all apes Darwin didn't say that. Darwin mentioned, by the way, Darwin mentions humanity, which is humans, once in the origin of species, and it's on the last page. It's on the very last page. Now, the final problem that Darwin saw, and again, that everyone was seeing, was adaptation. This is the idea that, different kinds of, you get it like, in your body. Just look at your own self. You're getting different kinds of teeth for doing different things, right? Your front teeth are for ripping, ones in the back are more for chewing, and look at and Look at a carnivore. Look at, well, let's go with cats, so look at a cat. Look at the teeth on a cat. They're for, ki- those are killing teeth. Look at the teeth on a cow. Those are for chewing stuff up. No, oh, they seem like they're sort of, almost like they're Adapted for something, and even so, that's between, even like I said, within. Look, we have different tissues in our bodies. My eyes, even as shitty as my eyes are, are still pretty, are much better at seeing than I don't know my teeth are. I can't see a thing out of these. Yeah. That's weird. How the hell did that happen? That's a. That's a good question, isn't it? I mean, when you think it's one of those things where you go, Oh, it is a good question. I've never thought of that before. That's a really good question. So the cool thing is Darwin figures out the solution to these problems, which is wicked. So natural selection, as I said before, provides a mechanistic account. It describes the mechanisms, it shows how it works. These things occurred and how they are intimately related, these three problems, these three problems are all related. And the, the thing about it was when this got published, when, when, it, when Darwin's theory came out, other naturalists were like, oh, come on. Really? It's that simple? And I often find that really cool discoveries are like that in science. People are like, you look at something, oh, of course. How else could it have ever worked? But I wasn't the guy who thought it up, so there goes my Nobel Prize. He would have a Nobel Prize, but he died before they ever had Nobel Prize. He'd have all the Nobel Darwin's like Newton or Einstein. Is that important? Like that kind of level smart? Not like, oh yeah, you got a lot of A's. No, I mean like, oh, I invented a whole field of study. No big deal. deal. So, how does this work? There's competition among living things. We see that. We know that more individuals. Uh, born or hatch or whatever, then survive into the adult breeding population. Right? You can see that with all kinds of animals, including people. So there's competition among living things. That's the way it is. Reproduction occurs with variation. So in other words, every every individual is different. Right? Look around. (laughs) We all look different. And that variation itself is heritable, right? Variation is heritable. So the fact that we look kind of like our mom or dad. And sometimes you go, gee, I don't look that much like my mom or dad, but boy, do I look like my mom's sister or something like that. Okay, still there's a family resemblance. There was no genetics back then. I mean, there was no science of genetics. There was genetics. It wasn't like some Mendel came along and invented genes. But there was no science of genetics. People didn't know how it worked. But Charles Darwin knew, man. He knew it wasn't just some kind of blending of the two. He knew something else was going on. He's dead wrong, the way he figured it out, But about the genetics, about the inheritance thing, because he just didn't know. But he knew it wasn't just blending of some sort. He knew that something happened. Right? That, that was more complicated than that. It's cool there. All right. All right. So selection determines which individuals enter the adult breeding population. This selection is done by the environment. Darwin realized that these ideas of you know variation and heritability. And he also realized that if he lived on a on a country estate in England, Darwin had money, like it wasn't like he was poor. Um, and he actually uh, Well, one of the guys that worked for who worked on his land, Uh, one of the guys who worked for him, ran racing pigeons. And how do you make a fast racing pigeon? Well, you take a fast mummy and a fast daddy and you make them. Howard farmers for years, and I mean years, ever since people. Where do you think cows come from? Humans invented cows. We invented them. There weren't any. And people in like at least three different places in history have bred a whole bunch of animals, like uh, oryx, for example, in Eastern Europe, which they don't exist anymore, but they're still cows. Yep? Um, Could you just simply define selection? Yeah, but cool, yeah. So, when I do the selection, if I'm breeding two pigeons, I am selecting a fast mummy and a fast daddy, mating them getting a fat, hopefully fast young. The environment doing it is somewhat different, but it's the same idea because the the, the, the organism doesn't really know who's doing the selection. So it could be me or it could be the environment. The environment does it like this. My favorite example is the salt and pepper moth, which is a moth that you can probably imagine is white with black flecks on it. That's why it's called a salt and pepper moth. One So it's a salt and pepper moth. Moth lives in the UK. And there's also a lot of birch trees. And if you know what birch bark looks like, being a moth that's white with black specks, you're going to blend into the background. You blend into the background. But then industrialization happens and they're pumping coal into the air and everything gets sooty and black and I, you have no conception of the level of pollution. Now the trees are black. So if you're a white colored a, a moth, with, moth with black specks, what happens to you if you're on a, a black background? What do you think happens? Just say something, just stop, stop talk. What happens? You get eaten. Because they're easy to see. So all the ones that look like that are easy to see they get eaten. But you know what? Guess who doesn't get eaten? The odd, weird one that's completely black colored and just blends in. Next thing you find is about 20, 20, 30 years in, there's no more of the salt and pepper kind of colored ones. They're just all black. And then in the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, there starts to be environmental regulations less crap thrown into the atmosphere and now being black isn't as good because you're going to show up on a white background now you get eaten and now the other ones are back yes John any question? so um, why selection can be done by the environment? it just is it's, that's, that's, that's an interesting question like it just it's kind of like saying why does this happen? why do they go down? just because it's a physical law just how things work so, yes, I could certainly talk about current space-time and all that kind of thing, but the point is that it's, a, it's, a, it's just a uh, property of the universe. So what happens here is that the environment, because it fluctuates, because it changes, think about it when it's cold out. You don't want to go out with, in the winter you don't go out with shorts on, you go out wearing long pants and coats. But think about if you could only wear long pants, only wear shorts, you'd be in real trouble in the winter. The winter in that case should be selecting the environment. It's selecting you to do have, be a, have a certain characteristic. it's That's a good question. Other questions? Okay, so. Did I answer your question about how selection works? Uh, yeah, is it the individual who's selected? Is it the genes that are selected? Like I see like the bullet uh, points there, and it, yeah, makes, yeah. it makes sense how it's kind of just like, yeah. How can I Okay like, it is yeah, it, it is the individual but selection can only act on what's almost called the phenotype, the outward characteristics. It mm-hmm. can only act on behavior and you know but all that stuff's caused by genes. Yeah. So we can look at selection is actually acting on genes, yeah. but this is gonna sound like selection's conscious, so this is the like, kind of, going to say selection doesn't know that, but selection can't know anything. It's not an entity. <laughs> um, so it acts indirectly on genes, but it's really acting only on phenotypes. It acts all on individuals, but it affects populations. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Thank you, sense. good. Yeah, so it affects populations, but it acts on individuals, and it acts on individual characteristics of individuals, but those are powered by genes. It can't act on things that aren't heritable. So I have pierced ears, right? Um, that's not heritable. Son's sitting right there, his ears are pierced. He didn't just have it; he wasn't born with a bunch of earrings, right? So it's that kind of thing. So it can only act on what is available uh, and what is like what what what's available what characteristics are available, plus they have to be characteristics that are heritable. And those characteristics, if they're well suited, are passed on to the young, right? And so on and so on. So, how does this work? It's reproduction, it's the key, not survival. We hear survival of the fittest, which is something Charles Darwin never said. (laughs) But fitness in evolutionary biology, fitness doesn't mean big and strong like bull. Fitness means reproductive success. Okay? So if you survive to be 128 but have no children, I win. And I win if I die tomorrow, which I mean, I hope I don't, because I got stuff to do. So I've reproduced. There's soon to be Dr. Broadbeck, with a sequel. October 30, November 1st, by the way, there won't be a class on October 31st, because I will be on my way to go to her PhD oral. That's her 10th birthday. And that's uh, him right there, that's my son, when he was about one, one and a half, sitting in front of a computer, because he's always sitting in front of a computer. Um, so assuming the traits that made me successful, whatever those traits may be, so I think it's just knowing hockey statistics and being sarcastic, but, Thank you, nothing? Like a little courtesy laugh would be nice now and then, but anyway, so assume assuming I am now more successful than the 128 year old guy who has no kids, because I've passed on my genes. And they, they get older. That's that's yes, we can tell that's your joke. And on the left, that's Natty giving a talk, at a conference, and there's both of them at her master's thesis convocation or a master's convocation. Soon, she, as I said, I can't wait to look at her and go, Dr. Broadback. and she said, Dr. Broadback, it's like a thing I've been thinking about since she was born, so. The reason you have, you know, you drive at least one kid into your academic field and have them write papers with you and cite your research, because it helps your career. It's not the mm-hmm. only reason we had kids. We also needed people to help with the cleaning. So... Survival of fittest. as I said, Charles Darwin never said, or as I like to call him, Chucky D, that was a straight name. Some of these are, I'm kidding, right? Like, that isn't true. Um, So people who have, or individuals who have offspring, that reproduce. So the answer to the trilogy of problems is, Descent with modification, this is in quotes because it's from origins. Descent with common modification from a common ancestor. Not random modification, but modification shaped by natural selection. All life on Earth goes back to a common ancestor. You are really distantly related to grass and botulism and the person beside you. By the way, isn't that kind of powerful to know? Like, doesn't that feel really cool to know that? (laughs) It's really neat. And it's so simple. And I mean, had I not been trying to really teach it, make sure you get it, I could've explained it in five minutes. It's a simple thing that has withstood the test of time. Every single time evolutionary theory has been challenged, what we found out is, oh, oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, that just actually fits in with this. It keeps working. No one's throwing out evolution by natural selection anytime soon. Okay. So, this is, we talked about cause and function, right? Remember, behavior has to have a cause and a function. The causal part of the behavior refers to the immediate cause, so, stimuli, that kind of thing. So, if I can. I mean, I, I, can, I can elicit a behavior from all of you right now. It's a very simple behavior, but if I I just say think of your favorite food. Just think of it, and you'll start salivating. Like, it's noticeable, right? You can actually feel, oh, there's spit in my mouth now, because there's an enzyme in saliva that breaks down start complex carbohydrates into sugars, right? Salivary amylase, it breaks down that if you don't believe this, take a piece of uh, you can use raw potato, that's kind of gross, but it's extremely starchy. Uh, a soda cracker with no salt on it, just put it in your mouth, and just sit it in your mouth. Don't chew. Just sit it in your mouth. After about a minute, it'll taste sweet, because the, 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 the starches are being broken down by, when you spit, they're being broken down into simple sugars, which is cool um that's simple stimulus simple behavior i mean is it behavior yeah sure so we have a stimulus and it causes the release of saliva that has salivary amylase fine but when i'm talking about it in this case just the cause in that case is me is you imagining the food Right? It works just even better when you put food in your mouth. But you've you've been eating food for a long time, (laughs) so you've you have learned not consciously, but you have learned to salivate when you put food in your mouth. So that's a cause. The function of that, what it accomplishes, is is we would think of that over evolutionary time, conceivably. Now, some of it isn't over evolutionary time. It's to break down the. These starches, that's over, you know, 90 seconds, a minute. But where does that come from? We have to look now at evolutionary time. Incredibly long periods of time. So if you look at something like honeybees, you know honeybees, you know the dance language of honeybees? You know, they communicate with each other. They go out and they find some food and they come back and then they tell the other bees where the food is, right? And they do that with a dance, right? So they do this, what's called the waggle dance, uh, yeah, I got enough space to write on there. So the way that works, in case you're interested, so that works like this. So if the, um, bee goes out and he finds uh, she actually, cause they're all, they'd all be she's. Let's say the sun is here. You like my sun? It's nice, isn't it? And here's the beehive. I'm not drawing a beehive, that's closest I'm gonna to come to drawing a beehive. And let's see, the food's here, okay? So this angle, let's call that angle X. Suddenly I see people having flashbacks to grade 10 math. So that angle can be measured. What happens is the bee goes into the hive and does a dance. And it's the same angle X and it dances along this axis here, right along here. And the way it dances is it does, so it does this in the middle, does little waggles and then around, and then a little waggle and around. And the number of times that it waggles its abdomen in that straight part is proportional to the distance that the bee has to travel, that the other bee's are gonna have to travel, and that angle is over the angle of the sun. And they don't know they're doing this. The bees aren't, the bees don't land and go, oh, I guess I have gotta do that whole waggle dance thing. Okay, so what was the angle again? That just happens. That evolution's done this. Okay, so if that's the case, where the does that come from? Well, if we look over evolutionary history, we can also look at closely related species that don't do the dance and see how they do it. Well, other species do things like they, do, they don't dance inside the hive, they dance on a, on a, a sort of uh, open air dance floor. There are other species that instead of doing the waggle dance, what they do is they just get really excited and sort of uh, regurgitate sugar, in other words, honey, back to the, their, their, their friends and it gets them excited and they fly out. Others just stand out in front of the hive going buzz, 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 to lead the others out. So over time, what's happened with different species is we end up getting the dance language of honeybees, which is, you know, freaking cool as hell. So that's usually going to be over evolutionary time, some of the function, but, but the, what is it, accomplished? isn't over the evolutionary time, it's over, it can be over just minutes or hours or whatever, but it's always afterwards. So how does the behavior increase fitness? How does the characteristic increase fitness? And you can imagine that with those moths, it increases fitness because it's hard to reproduce when you're dead. In fact, it's pretty much impossible. So getting eaten, because you were easily seen, was a pretty big, what we call selective pressure. Alright, so let's talk about us. We shouldn't say we split from the chimps, we and the chimps split. Humans and chimps split somewhere between five and maybe as far as seven million years ago. They went their way, we went ours. We were once, then we split. So we were one species. Then we split off into our two. For a long time, and I mean, you know, millions of years, <laughs> we humans were basically not so hairy, short apes. Kind of what we still are. We're a bit taller than chimps. Taller than chimps. We're taller than bonobos. We're not as tall as gorillas. Yes, John. So. Uh for about five million years ago, yeah, did we split for the uh, chips? Well, we—that's—that's that's why I said I, I try to explain. This. It wasn't us splitting away from chimps. Us and the chimps were the same species, mm-hmm. and then they went their way. We went ours. So in fact, I should—I should. You know what? I'm going to edit that slide right now. Okay. Yeah, because that—it no, it, it's confusing, and I'm just going to edit it. Uh, human. Imps split from each other around five million years ago. Go. And there we go. MYA is a million years ago. It's a term you'll see in you'll see in um paleo anthropology, things like that. So we still are kind of not so hairy short apes. Um what happened? <laughs> like, but I can say that when we split off, the, the the thing that when we when we split off the two lines, the thing that leads to us is well, there's a bit of there's controversy there, but it's something that walked upright. We know that from looking at its pelvis; it walked upright. Um but it's pretty clearly something also that still had very warm fingers and hands for climbing. Uh, And it was kind of hunched over. We're very good at walking up like like we are. And it was covered in fur. You get about, geez, a million two, 1.2, 1.3 million years ago, you start getting things that look vaguely like us. You get like Homo or, Dast- or Gaster and Adelis and that, they, they, they look enough like us. They're hairless, they're roughly, pretty much, except on their heads and their armpits and their crotches, but that's about it. They aren't covered in fur anymore. That took a long time. That took a long time. So there's millions of years where You wouldn't look at the person, at at, at one of these guys and go, yeah, that's that's a person. You'd go, that's a really weird looking ape. (laughs) That looks like an ape wearing a human outfit. Like, you (laughs) you look a little off, you know? But something weird happens, who knows when, but it changes us. And it's quite possibly our diet change. One of the things that we started doing is we started using tools. And by, and these tools are, one sec, these are, they're complicated tools. I mean, things like rocks, and stone axes, so simple things. But we were able to butcher animals more easily, um, break into their, inside their bones, and suck out the marrow. James? Uh, what, what, what other than uh, the uh, dietary uh, attribution, like what, what, or, uh, what, 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 uh, what else would um, Potentially. Uh, well, um, we'll get there. So, partially it's the diet. We think, we don't know, this is a the thing. These are all guesses. Um, but it's probably something with our diet, we are able to get nutrition out of other animals that other animals couldn't get, right? E- eating the marrow of bones is something that humans did. Our cooking is something humans did. But a million, five, 1.5 million years ago, we figured out fire. And when you figure out fire, there's a couple of cool things you can do. One of them is you can stay up late. Because you keep predators away if you've got a fire there. So you stay up late. You can cook. Why is cooking useful? First of all, food tastes good. But that's because we've already evolved to enjoy food like that. So that's circular. You can get different, you can get nutrients more easily a food if food you cook. It. Right? are safer? There's, yeah, there's safety matters, but I mean, you know, these were, these were animals that only lived to be maybe 25 or 30 anyway. And they a lot uh, anyway. The yeah, they're eating a lot of raw meat anyway. But eventually, yeah, it's going to be somewhat safer. The biggest thing is it's easier to extract nutrients out of food. So, and you think about certain things like if we, if we eat and they aren't cooked, they're poisonous, right? Like they're awful. Think about things like beans. If you've ever eaten beans that aren't cooked enough, you're, you're doubled over sick for a couple of days, but if you cook them, you're fine. That kind of thing. So we're able to do something cool. We're also able to, we're sitting around a fire at night, Maybe we start talking about our day, Right? Maybe we start talking about why people act the way they do. What's that, John? So, um, when we change our diary, do, do we uh, literally uh, well, eat uh, vegetables such as carrots? <laughs> yeah. That's a good question, actually. Was it, a, we don't know if it's a conscious choice, so that's not something we can know. Um, did we eat vegetables? Yes. Did we eat meat? Yes. Did we eat everything? Yes. One of the cool things about people is that we can eat anything, we're omnivores. So, one of the things that happens is that, anybody who tells you that, I'm on the paleo diet, all I do is eat animals. They're idiots. Those people are called idiots. They can, if that's your diet, have fun. Eat as many animals as you want. I enjoy, I love delicious dead animals. My, one of my favorite foods. But you know what else? People can live on just vegetables. People can live on just meat. People can, we do that. That's the weird thing about people. We live everywhere and we eat everything, which is probably not great for the world, <laughs> but we do. It's something we can do, right? So we actually can eat almost, eat everything. So anybody who tells you that I only eat like a caveman because of evolution and blah, 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 ask them what they're eating, because everything they're eating didn't exist 200,000 years ago. We invented cows, we invented sheep. Evolution didn't do that, we built those. Domestic chickens, we pretty much invented those. All the, John mentioned carrots, Great example. Carrots. you know what carrots used to look like? Little balls of grossness that were about this big. Go take a look and find out what corn used to look like. Until the, 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 the indigenous people of North America figured this out. Because people were doing this all over the world. This didn't matter what color your skin was or what your background was. Everybody, humans figured this out pretty quickly. You know, if I cross this with this, i get something like that. We've been doing that everywhere. So yeah, so people were eating. It wasn't just meat. We have this idea, I think, in our heads that you know the sort of quote cavemen are are going after mastodons and just eating them. But no, they're also eating berries and fruits. In fact, most of their diet was probably that. A question. Do we know if the potential diet change or learning how to make fire came like which came (laughs) first? No. (laughs) No. The oldest fire remnants we've seen. Um, go back, I thought 1.5 million years, that's probably Homo heidelbergensis, so that's a couple or four people. We know that Homo naledi used fire, um, and we know Neanderthal used fire, and we know, of course, we do. So it's pretty old, and I think probably the the guess is that the fire came before a diet change. Because the the, the ability to cook may have driven the diet change, we don't really know. And until my time machine is complete, no one will ever know. Yep. And this is kind of leading to the way that maybe our brain changed more. It's totally with it. Because one of the things that happened is that because we have this diet change, we probably I'm gonna make there's a lot of probabilities in what I'm about to say here because no one really knows. knows. We we probably when we were out in the ground and the our the ones that became chimps were in the the, uh, trees. We had to be able to see over tall grass to see our prey. You do that by standing up. Okay, so if you're standing up looking over, you're gonna do better if you're standing straight up, right? So if you stand straight up, something has to happen. If you're standing, most animals, Think. don't care of any other, any other mammals that get along on two feet only and can get along on four, but it doesn't work very well. We don't even call these feet and legs anymore. We call them arms and hands. They have different names for humans. There's not a whole lot of other mammals that's... Kangaroos. Yeah, but you know what, but cool. kangaroos are cool. I was thinking about kangaroos. The thing about kangaroos, though, is that they don't use their hands for manipulating things like we do. And we still think of those as legs, right? But yeah, some of those kangaroos are the only other one I can think of, and wallabies, and I'm sure a bunch of other weird Australian animals I've never heard of. Oh, that's a floor ding I saw a vehicle big enough to carry all that gasoline. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Mad Max? Anybody? No. Okay. I need five gallons of diesel fuel. Five gallons of high octane as much fuel as this beast can carry. You gotta pump blood up. You gotta pump blood uphill. You stand up, your heart has to go against gravity. You know your brain uses like 75% of your oxygen and 25% of your glucose, unless I have those numbers reversed. Anyway, it's really a big number, which is brought to your brain by blood. It's gotta pump uphill. If I stand up, Who's gonna have an advantage? A little bit bigger heart, right? And if I have a little bit bigger heart, that gives me more capacity to have a bigger brain. Okay. Our brains are what makes us who we are. So you're suddenly pumping blood uphill so now you have more capacity to make a bigger brain. One of the things you can see is the giant change in human brain size. If you look at different species of humans, so I don't mean like H. sapiens, which we all are. I mean if you look at Orgaster or Hyaluragansis or habilis, they have smaller brains. The Antol brains were almost as big as ours. In fact, they might have even been bigger than ours. Yeah, Yeah. but there's no Neanderthals around. Well, there's some Neanderthal DNA in a lot of us. That's for sure. you get a bigger brain. See, we don't have big teeth, humans. We can't run fast like a cheetah. I even with steroids. (laughs) You're never gonna hit more than say 45 kilometers an hour for a very brief period. We aren't built like that. We can have smarter prey, though. Okay. We can get together, and even if we don't speak a language, I can still draw a picture on the ground with, with, a, with, a, with a stick going, you go here, you go here, and I'll chase the, the mammoth this way, and then you guys will throw a box at it. We have smarter prey. The other thing we do is we we can outrun our brain. Not for short periods of time, for extremely long periods of time. What's the function of us not having fur? What's what's, what's the deal with being a mammal without fur? That's stupid. We had to invent clothes. You know why? Because you know what we can do? I'm going to throw a rock at that wildebeest. It's not going to kill it. It's not going to hurt it. We're just going to chase it for a couple of days until it dies of exhaustion, and then we're going to eat it because we're awesome human hunters. We don't need, we don't have fur because we don't, we don't sweat as much, we don't overheat so much. If we don't overheat so much, we can last longer in long runs on the savannah of Africa. Where we all come from. Wild, right? It's a small advantage, not having fur, but it's an advantage. So am I saying that big brains mean big smarts? In other words, well, look at our brain size compared to other animals. You know, I like kind of it. There's this idea of what's called an encephalization quotient or an EQ. If you look at humans, if you, if you just say okay, we're gonna arbitrarily see the, the uh, you take the rat's brain size, you divide it by its body size, and that's gonna, we're gonna call that one. We're just gonna set that at one. And any other species we can test, we can see. So you look at like a dog is about a 1.2, a cat's about a 0.8, human's about a 5.8. Dolphins are like seven though. Are dolphins smarter than us? No. Any dolphins sitting out here? Don't think so. Dolphins are cool and also vicious killers, is, we have this idea. Oh, dolphins are so wonderful. Mm-hmm. Just don't screw with them. <laughs> I want to swim with the dolphins. First of all, don't do that, it's weird. But secondly, just don't do it, it's weird. Um, so, in fact, it's the case that certain bird species, for example, have bigger hippocampus. Hippocampus is a part of the brain that's important for remembering where things are. It's called spatial memory, and their hippocampal volume is bigger than you would expect and they, they, they rely on stored food. They find food, they store. They in fact, food storing birds don't fly south for the winter. They don't, they don't uh, na- uh, migrate. What they do is when they wake up in the morning, they find a piece of food that they've stored somewhere in the environment and they eat it and then they go and find more food and store it for the next day. So a black-capped chickadee, you know, a little, little chickadee. Black-capped chickadee, if it does not eat 30, uh, about 30 minutes after it wakes up in the winter, it starves to death. So they better find food pretty quickly so they remember where the food is. And other food stores are like that as well. Other food stores are like that as well. So there's something to be said for bigger brain regions meaning something. That's between species though. So that's saying that, okay, we look at a chickadee or a I don't know what's the other one. Uh, scrub jay, or a blue jay, or a crow, uh, or a nut hatch, We I can say, yeah, their hippocampus is big, and they remember where the stored food is. Okay, gotcha. Within species, could I just measure each of your brains? And they give you marks, if only. You know, it'd be way better than, than, than marking essays, just 86, like, at A6, good, <laughs> faster. When, if I ever develop that, I will become the king of the professors. Uh, you can't really do this with MP. You almost can't do it with individuals uh, of, of the same species. It's there's something there, probably, but it's so small. Or under very specific circumstances, uh, cab drivers in London, England, have bigger hippocampus than non cab drivers. There's data on that like crazy, but. There's not a whole lot saying that there's, and are there differences between there's there's sex differences. So uh, women have smaller brains on average than men, but women score the same as men on IQ tests. Uh, women, the other thing is, men women have the corpus callosum, With the fibers that connect the two sides of the brain. It's bigger than women than it is in men, but it doesn't in the end. I've heard a fact, you know, question to them. So are both women and men smarter? Yeah, oh yeah, you can't tell anything from looking at somebody's brain size. You can't tell anything about how smart they are. But if they had none, maybe you're looking at, well, there's no brain there. That's probably not going to do very well in an IQ test. But no, uh, there's, there's really no difference. There's, there's no... We talked the other day about, for example, there being differences, spatial differences between men and women, but they're small, unimportant differences. Uh, but looking at sort of physiological differences, uh, there are group differences, uh, there's really nothing there that we concerned about. So the point of this is that if that our brains made us who we are, and we evolved to be like this, and so natural selection has made humans who we are. One of the things you always have to keep in mind is that we're just animals. We're extremely cool, just animals. No other animal can be is like us. There's nothing like us. Not even remotely like us. There's things that we can do that no other animal can do. Some of them are complicated things, but some of them are simple like Independently moving all my digits. <laughs> other animals can't. Like that's wild. That did a huge thing for us. Like grasping things with the are grip. No other animal could do that. just standing up on two feet, huge thing. Talking about stuff that isn't there. Like I can say to you, imagine if the sky was purple. You just imagine it. You've never seen a purple sky. Maybe. Neither am I, but I can imagine, uh, Spider-Man cartoon, <laughs> but I can imagine. No problem. We're amazing. But we're also just a big bag of chemical reactions, which is also pretty pretty cool. And that's why, that's what I think makes this stuff so exciting is that I'm gonna, you know, in the next 12 weeks, 11 weeks, we're gonna talk about how whole bunch of chemical reactions can allow us to see and feel and think. Right. But we are just animals. We're just the only one that ever asks questions like this. Right. Any questions, I, this is a little early to stop, but I think, I think we've, I've accomplished what I wanted to accomplish today. I'm sorry, I've accomplished what I wanted to accomplish last Wednesday. i'm never ever ever going to forget that yeah just change the room we're not gonna tell you we're just gonna change the room all right all right uh thanks everybody and i'll see you all next time thanks So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, These are copyrighted, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved, so you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, And also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, Most of the... The vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, And it was called Podsafe Music. So this is all music that I have uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to. put on these podcasts uh if you are interested i can oftentimes find the the name of the band the name of the band will be listed in the post and uh, go look these bands up and and buy their music because um if they're cool enough to let me use this you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs uh on that note i will see you next time